From Bristol, UK, I'm Pommy Harmer. And I'm Melissa Shamam, and this is The Quarantini. We're bringing you this podcast every week to keep your spirits up and until the COVID crisis in the UK has ended. As with every week, we'll bring you a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, and a dash of the unexpected. Hello and welcome to season three, where the structure slightly changes. Actually, yes, we're going to put some highlights on music this season by featuring creative artists, notably from the West Country, but also beyond, mostly young and starting out, and we'll discuss how to support musicians and the art in in this tale of the crisis. But first, we're going to bring you an interview each week, which will take us beyond COVID into the new world. This section will highlight thinkers and experts talking about key responses to the many crises that the coronavirus has brought us, either responses being planned or maybe still in their imaginations. Then in the second part of the show, we'll bring you our brief roundup of exciting responses to the coronavirus from all over the world. And as a dash of something exciting, the third part of this podcast in this season will be the music feature we mentioned earlier. And to begin with, a big up to Seb Gutierrez and his band, The Old Bones Collective, for that music, hot flute, or opening theme. So coming up in the show now, we have our interview. And as this season is highlighting life after COVID, what it will mean to us and what parts of our lives will change because of it, and how maybe this could be viewed as a time to make all kinds of positive changes, we wanted to find someone who's been thinking about it as much as us. Well, we did indeed find someone. We found Martin Parker, Professor of Organisation Studies at the University of Bristol. Now, he's a man who's been thinking deeply about life after COVID enough to gather all kinds of essays from other thinkers and compile a book about it. He begins by telling me what his job actually is. Here he is. So I am Professor of Organisation Studies, um, which really means that I'm a sociologist who works in a business school. Um, And I'm interested in, I suppose, in the world that we've made with organisations. So, you know, for most of us, we, we exist within and suspended between organisations. And so I try to understand what that means and most particularly what it does to us and how we might make it differently. So it's about designing systems as well as organisations, is it? Yeah, sort of. I mean, we can think about the whole world as organised, can't we? Our, our social world is organised in terms of the whole set of distribution systems and the way that money flows and different institutions and organisations that populate that world. Um, my uh, strong sense for the last uh, 20, 30 years really has been that the way that we organise our world is a very dangerous one, one that's producing all sorts of inequalities, all sorts of problems in terms of social justice and, most importantly, perhaps of all, a species-threatening crisis. So we need to re-engineer the systems and organisations of our world if we're going to have much of a chance of surviving. So why is it that we don't design the most effective systems that, for the greater good to start with? Is it that we're just a very selfish, uh, a selfish race? No, that's a really, really nicely put, that question. I mean, I, you'd think if human beings were reasonable and rational, then they would design the best world to start off with. 
wouldn't you? But of course that's not necessarily the case. What we see is that power is distributed very unevenly. And so it's not surprising in that context that the forms of organisation that we have are usually forms of organisation that benefit some people at the expense of others. So we could say, you know, that's a way of describing what capitalism does. Yeah? So capitalism tends to concentrate power, authority and wealth in relatively few hands. So unsurprisingly, many of our organisations are designed in order to continue extracting value from the world and concentrating it in the hands of relatively few people. Just the, you know, the obvious illustration during COVID times is Amazon. Yeah? Currently, Jeff Bezos is probably the richest person who has ever, ever lived. You know, richer than all the pharaohs, all the kings and princes who've ever lived. Um, and that's because he's designed, well, a form of organisation. He benefits from a form of organisation, which is incredibly efficient at extracting resources from the world and labour from human beings and concentrating it in relatively few hands. So, you know, that's rational for Jeff Bezos. It's not very rational for the rest of us. Yes, yes. Now, so presumably this is why you've brought out a new book which you've edited called Life After Covid. This is a collection of essays, I understand, by a number of writers. Before we get on to, to that, just tell us why you wrote it. Yeah, so... Um... Like most of us in um, in the UK, I was thinking a lot in the middle of March about what it meant, never having experienced anything like this. But the weather was quite nice and I had a garden. And at the early kind of early sort of weeks of lockdown, I find myself slowing down a lot, you know, feeling kind of a general sense of anxiety and, of course, um, of sympathy for all of those people who are suffering. But at the same time, myself... Um, Travelling less, cooking more, noticing how quiet the city was, noticing that there weren't jet trails over my house anymore, um, talking to my partner a lot, Skyping my kids, you know, all sorts of nice things. I mean, generally having quite a nice time, quite enjoying myself. Being very aware how lucky I was in that kind of position, but also kind of thinking about, okay, so how do we bottle some of this stuff? How do we, how do we learn lessons from this moment? Um, and so then I decided I wanted to try and pull together a, um, a bunch of people to write and think about these kinds of things, about you know, how, we, how we capture um, a sense of what a reset might look like for the world. Um, so I sent um, a series of emails out to a whole load of activists and um, academics that I know in the city and more widely. Um, asking them if they'd be interested in, in giving me a 3,000-word chapter on some aspect of the world that had changed for them, um, and was very rapidly deluged with responses. I had about 30 responses in a week. Um, I couldn't possibly publish all of those because Bristol University Press only wanted a relatively, a relatively short and quick book. Um, so I'd say no to about half of them. But the ones that were left on, you know, things like food and money and, and work and, whole, you know, uh, a, a set of topics which are of concern to us were really interesting essays and all of them shared that sense of this being a moment um, where we could pause, reevaluate the world that we've built, the organisations that we inhabit, the systems that we've constructed and try to think about how we could, you know, in the, in the, the famous hashtag phrase now, uh, hashtag build, build back better. Yeah, so tell us what... You've obviously read an awful lot of, of 
different ideas. What was the most surprising essay that you read? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess one of the in, one of the ones that I would immediately go to in terms of the sort of the the the, the problems of it was the one on money, actually, by my colleague Dan Tisher and others. Um, obviously, one of the things that's happened during COVID is that we've all been pushed towards virtual money to contactless payment and so on. And indeed, in um, lots of, of contexts now, there are you know businesses that simply aren't taking cash at all. Um, initially, that seemed to be because of some worry that uh, of the kind of the infectious potential of banknotes and coins and all the rest of it. I suspect this is now slipping into a kind of a payment normal in which contactless is simply becoming the, the sort of the obligatory form of payment. And that sounds kind of modern and exciting, you know, like we're not going to have cash around anymore and so on. But one of the things that uh, Dan Tisch's essay does is to kind of explore the question in terms of access to cash for uh, people who are, you know, broadly left behind. In other words, you know, what happens if there isn't cash uh, to those people who don't necessarily have easy access to contactless payment and so on. So two, two things, you know, from, from the essay struck me. One is, of course, when you're talking about access to ca- digital cash, you're talking about access to the digital generally, aren't you? To, to mobile phones, for example. That's not, that's not universal. My, my mother doesn't have a mobile phone that is smart enough to pay by cash. Um, She's not, she's not of that generation. So you're going to be disenfranchising a whole bunch of people who don't really use that stuff. And secondly, for, for lots of ordinary people, ordinary working class people in Bristol and elsewhere, um, they might feel much more comfortable dealing in cash, both, both you know, their businesses and themselves. So there's a curious sense in which the dash to virtuality uh, to, to kind of these, these uh, payment systems is also a way of concentrating the power over cash within certain large companies, you know, like MasterCard and Visa and, uh, and, and, and whatever the big payments providers are. So this is a further kind of concentration of power. In that sense, then, cash actually starts to look a bit more democratic. Everybody can have access to cash, right? The state provides us with cash. So if you live within a state, you can get access to cash. What the move to virtual virtual payment is doing is effectively taking those powers away from the state and giving them to private businesses. So there's going to be winners and losers in many of the changes that we're going to see, I think is what you're saying. Um, were any of the essays particularly dystopian in their view? <laughs> I deliberately didn't pick ones that were dystopian. <laughs> the, the, I mean, there were, there were some that I kind of that were a bit dark and I edited them towards the light, uh, trying to make everybody um, appreciate the importance of relentless optimism right now. Um, I feel quite strongly about this stuff, that there's, there's a sense, I think, um, in which we, we have so many reasons to be uh, fearful of the future. But if we're going to redesign the way that we think about our cities, our work, our families, all the rest of it, in order to, in order to address the problems of social justice and climate change, then we are going to need relentless optimism. You know, we need visions of a future that's going to work. And so the kind of dystopian stuff, I'm, I'm deliberately pushing away. You know, it's almost like those, those are my darker nightmares. That's, that's what I don't want to know about. Um, and you know, as, as as has been well documented, there are plenty of people, particularly young people now, who are you know paralysed by the prospect of the the world that awaits them. Uh, you know, I think I think we we owe it to them and to ourselves too 
to be optimistic. Even even when we don't feel like it, we just have to carry on being optimistic. I think that's a, that's a good way to move forwards, isn't it? It's been a joy to talk to you, Martin. I wish you well, and I hope that all your dreams come true and all your essays come true. And uh, I think your book's out on the 12th of August, is that's that right? That's right, yeah. And people can get it from University Press. Available from, uh, yes, the University Press, or just don't buy it off Amazon. No, no, we won't buy it off Amazon. <laughs> Thanks so much to Professor Martin Parker. And don't forget you can order his book, Life After COVID-19, from University Press. It's published on August 12th. It's now time for our weekly roundup. And in a previous episode, we interviewed Keir Gallagher from Cycling UK, all about the cycling infrastructure being the number one thing to encourage us all to get back on our bikes if we haven't already. So tell us what's happening in Bristol, Melissa. Yes, indeed. Some new cycling paths have appeared. Uh, the first weekend of August, new pop-up cycle lanes have been put on a road, you know, in the city centre and in part of uh, what we call here the Clifton Triangle. Uh, several roads were also closed for through traffic for the first time, including most of the road around Bristol Bridge, uh, which was restricted from all directions uh, towards the city centre especially. The reaction to these changes were already mixed. Like some people have obviously praised the measures, but uh, others claim that congestion will only become more difficult. But generally, these changes are being made to encourage less carbon-heavy transport and so hopefully to generate less air pollution, Pommy. I think it's a great idea and I think people will will mind, particularly the car drivers amongst us, but... Uh we just have to change all of that, don't we? It takes a bit of time. And actually, you know, one thing that we can add is that apparently you can take some uh, cycling lessons for free at the moment. So if you want to go with your teenagers and just, you know, go and see how it works, maybe that could be a way to learn which roads are good for you and which one are about to change and where are the new changes. Because obviously we've mentioned that many times because the changes are still currently happening. Yes. And moving on to the UK, this is an amazing bit of news. I absolutely love this. It's all about beavers, Melissa. <laughs> Fifteen families of beavers living on a river in Devon have won, I don't quite understand this, but they've won the legal right to remain there. Devon Wildlife Trust are behind this and they've been investigating the beavers' impact on the local environment over the last five years. And they found that beavers have increased the numbers of fish, they've improved the water quality, this means more food for otters and because they're herbivores and they eat loads of green plants, they keep the rivers clean and kingfishers flourish better. So their dams work as natural flood defences and help reduce the risk of homes flooding downstream. Now, 400 years ago, they were hunted to extinction in this country for their meat and their fur. And the Trust have called it the most groundbreaking government decision for England's wildlife for a generation. Oh, it's an amazing piece of news. I'm very sensitive to it because obviously as a EU citizen, I'm also fighting for the right to remain. And, yes. and I, I'm really happy that those guys who have been, you know, struggling for 400 years and doing so much for nature are finally protected. That's really heartwarming. I really recommend going on YouTube and having a look at them. They're very, very cute. Also, don't forget that this month of August, you can help out and support independent restaurants, independent food shops by using the Eat Out to Help Out initiative put in place by the UK government. So choose carefully who you want to help out. 
this initiative means that diners can enjoy a half-price meal, as you know. Uh, so it's between Mondays and Wednesdays every week this month of August. And for Bristol, for instance, you have a, a list of all the independent restaurants to support in your area. You have one on the Bristol 7 website, for instance, also on the Bristol Food Union. And there's plenty of choices, so think before you eat. And you can just help the economy as well and the right people who are, have been so uh, organized to help the most vulnerable and bringing better food to our city while we were in crisis. I'm definitely going to do that. Now, bird watching has boomed during the COVID-19 lockdown in Australia and it's having an unexpected benefit. Scientists there have been using an increase in data on bird identification apps to help with conservation efforts after Australia's devastating bushfires. More than 400 species of birds were affected by the fires and their movements are now being tracked through a simple app used by the public. Oh, it's really great news as well because I think a lot of people have forgotten that this terrible year started by this horrific um, wildfire in Australia that might come around in other places like you know California later in the year. So... The fact that the COVID crisis came on top and now finally the, 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 you know, this bird watching thing is expressing a different relation to nature. It's funny how time affects us, isn't it? Because I, I had to check that the fires had actually happened this year because it seemed like they were a world away. Ages ago. Mm. But unfortunately, it's just, yeah, packed. All this was packed in six months. Well, Good news from the US for a change. Um, near Seattle in Washington state, in the northwest of the United States, people are sending surplus crops to food banks to help farmers and hungry families. Um, they're called Farmers in Eastern Washington, and they were giving away notably potatoes and onions, and they held the discarded crops to the Western Washington food banks. Um, they have been sending call for help and the response was immediate okay and now it's time for a dash of something new and exciting tell us all about it melissa yes obviously Pommy, when we started this podcast we really wanted to feature beautiful sound and especially music which we have done for the two seasons but this season we want to go a little further so we have a wonderful partner that's called Funnel Music. It's a great record label highlighting new artists in the West Country, in England, and even further. And so they agreed on us using um, anything we want from their label to highlight their bands they're working with. As we all know, um, Britain is really well known for its fantastic music scene. And here in the quarantine, we're big music fans, but obviously mu the music industry has been the most affected by the coronavirus crisis, isn't it, Pommy? It's like all they do is what had to stop from touring to having um, massive gathering in indoors venues late at night. So have, I don't know about you, but a lot of people have been missing that. I think it's been a big, big change and it doesn't look set to change for some time, does it? Yeah, so we, we can try to talk about it more in the quarantine podcast because obviously there's many charity in Bristol or even just groups trying to support the venues for them not to close down. I personally hope that a lot of artists will accept to organise like gigs in smaller venues where people can social distance, like having maybe seats back, you know, maybe use theatre or 
places. You mean like where, a sort of cabaret setup? Yes, like you know, we all like to be closer to the stage. Like I, I, I go and see massive gigs, but you know, bands that I've been following for years from other countries as well. But we can support younger, smaller artists in small venues, as you're saying, because we feel like you know we can have tables and a nice drink, and they will be on stage, and and you have all this heartwarming exchange with with the band because they they can be a bit more chatty or closer to the audience and hopefully that will be uh, able to come back and maybe in September we don't know yet but in the meantime we can still listen to music on podcasts right and um, a lot of artists have decided not to release music in this time of hardship but a lot of other artists have decided to keep on writing Um, personally I've discovered that many bands thanks to for instance initiatives like um, the the Colston Hall had had some online event and during one I think it was in April I heard uh, many bands that I love many new bands that I didn't know and they were all playing from home obviously via camera or YouTube or Zoom and one of them right away after hearing that gig I bought all their EPs and they work with Fanon Music and they're called The Desert Uh, The Desert is a trio based in Bristol and it's mainly the work of Gina Leonard, the singer and songwriter, and the lyricist and composer Tom Fryer. And here is a song I picked from them that was released maybe 14 months ago, but is still, you know, on one of their recent EPs. Uh, it's called Soulmates. It's really beautiful. I think we can both say we both love it. <laughs> I said, do you believe in soulmates? She said, yeah, I found mine She grew bored of me We were talking down broken lines I said, you ever make someone cry? He said, I'll leave your cheek shiny clean Cause I can fake that kind When I mean I mean it, I don't really mean it. I don't really mean it. Goes down so easy. Did you ever get lonely? He said to you I said it's growing on
So that was the song Soulmates by the band uh, The Desert, and you can find more of their music on YouTube, SoundCloud, and you can buy some of their EPs online. You know I love you Even though I never tell you At least not in those words Even though I never tell you at, le- at least not in those words Ooh, 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 how it hurts Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's it for the quarantini this week. We'll be back next week with a new cocktail of ideas and positive news for you all. We'd really love to hear from you. If you want to send us good news or some music, you can always email us at thequarantinepodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This episode was hosted by me, Melissa Shaman. And was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. Thank you for listening. And stay safe.